morning, everybody. Okay, we're here. Wow. I have uh, a concern, a, a deep concern as I was studying this passage. This is kind of what overwhelmed me that this passage on the death of Christ is such a powerful testimony of something that I think we, I don't know, maybe through familiarity, we just don't get it. Because I'm really appalled, I'm really kind of heartbroken. How many people, Christian people, have no idea that they are truly loved? Passionately loved, magnificently loved, permanently loved. And some people, I mean smart people, healthy, beautiful people like, like you guys, maybe you have been in Sunday school your whole life, like you guys, some of you. And yet you can be abysmally sad sometimes because you don't know that you're really loved. So this is kind of where we're starting here. Can I get this up here? Here we go. Question. Do you know that you are loved? And I mean loved profoundly by God. Now, I don't pretend to know all the reasons why it's so hard for some of us to, to believe that. It may be just a symptom of our fallenness. Because it's easier for fallen people to believe a lie than the truth. But I do know that when you don't feel like you're loved, you think you have to earn it. You know, perform for it. Not just perform for God, perform for everybody. And, and that's a tragic way to live because, for, well, for one thing, it's exhausting to try to get people to love you. Because it's so hard for you to believe that. So you're trying to convince people, you know, you're thinner and smarter and kinder and holier than you really are. And the question is, what does it take for God to convince us that he loves us truly, passionately, magnificently, permanently? How does he prove it that he loves us like that? And that's where we are today. We discover there really is such proof. And for that, we are in John chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, open to that or consult your notes on this. I haven't really explained why I give you a different translation, but uh, this, is a, it, this is the speaker's translation. It's not meant to substitute for your own Bible by any means. This is one guy's way of taking it in order to facilitate and help us understand it the best we can. In John 19, we started on this last week where the Savior is on the cross, condemned as a common criminal. After flogging Jesus a second time, the Roman soldiers have nailed him to one of the three crosses at what is called Skull Place. Two real criminals are on the crosses on either side of him. Jesus' crime is posted over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate meant it as an insult to his subjects whom he hates as much as they hate Jesus. As Jesus hangs in shame and agony, four soldiers divvy up his garments. They unwittingly, but not accidentally, fulfill prophecy as they, you know, they parcel out clothes that they assume the young preacher will never need again. Of course, they don't know anything about the resurrection. Uh, up till now, all the crooks they've killed have stayed that way, 100%. Well, the end of verse 24 says, that's why the soldiers did these things. God's plan unfolding according to scripture right on schedule. But look, not everybody on Skull Hill, it could have been a hill that Friday. Well, not everyone was trying to kill Jesus. 
We go to verse 25. Well, unlike the four soldiers who were there to make sure that the three men died as ordered, there were four men, or excuse me, four women close by. N- not to hurt Jesus, of course, but to help in any way possible. They have chosen to share our Lord's humiliation as well as accept the, the cringing sorrow of watching him die. And so we start like this in verse 25. But standing beside Jesus' cross, beneath the cross of Jesus, was a small huddle of great love where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now some people read that as three women all named Mary, but it's more likely that there were four. Most importantly, Mary Jesus' own mother, who actually is always unnamed in this gospel. The other three are there, no doubt, to support their friend and sister who is losing her son. A pain a few of you moms have also had to endure. Seems to have happened before Jesus cried out about being forsaken by God, his father. You can see with his own eyes that he has not been forsaken by his mother. One of the 12 disciples is there as well, who also is never named in this gospel. This is clearly the writer of our gospel, the apostle John, the disciple Jesus loved. So verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, using words not much different from ancient adoption ceremonies, woman, here's your son. And then he said to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And from the writing, we don't know the exact time when this gospel was written, but then after many, many years, he had taken care of Jesus' mother. He had a long history of the meaning of that last phrase, took her into his own home. Jesus calls himself the disciple, excuse me, John calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. And I'm sure he doesn't, mean to imply that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. It's possible that each disciple could have privately thought of himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I'm the one. Let's like all your kids say, I'm the favorite child. But John seems to have cherished a special closeness with Jesus. Just a few short hours before this, John was reclining beside Jesus at the final supper, leaning back against his master, you remember, uh, to ask who the betrayer was. Their closest may have been partly due to the fact that they were most likely first cousins. Their moms were sisters. Most think John was significantly younger than Jesus. So Jesus would naturally look out for him, take John under his wing. He's the younger guy. But I suspect that the main reason John knew the master loved him in a special way was because of what happened right here. Right here at the cross where Jesus gives him the incredible and singular privilege of caring for Mary, the Lord's own mother. What a gift of love to John. Now I call this section filial love. Filial refers to what a a son does, what a son does toward a parent, in this case a mother. He loves her. He won't let her believe. He went away without thinking what it might, might mean for her. William Barclay wrote this, there is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in agony on the cross and in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother 
in the days when he would be taken away. It's odd that Jesus calls her woman instead of mother. But it's not rude. At the time, it meant something closer to dear woman. Jesus, of course, is pinned to the cross, so he must use his eyes to single her out, dear woman, because there were four women, so he was talking to his mom. But he says, dear woman, here's your son. And then pointing now to her nephew, John, with his eyes again, to John, he says, here's your mother, eyes pivoting back to the dear woman. He must leave. What a scene to have watched this happen. But here, a new son to replace the dying, a son to protect and provide for her when Jesus is gone. Some background. Mary's husband, Joseph, is gone now. And so Jesus, being the oldest son, would have responsibility, like to be the main provider or breadwinner. Well, he's not going to be able to do that. Well, Jesus' brothers, why not them? Well, they were not yet followers. In fact, uh, they probably resented that big brother was off out of Nazareth doing whatever he does, you know, um, being about his father's business, his other father. And so at this powerful moment, Jesus puts Mary in the care, not of his brothers, but of his dearest disciple, who, unlike his brothers, loved Jesus just like Mary did. Old Simeon had predicted this moment of maternal anguish when he prophesied to Mary back in Luke chapter 235, a sword will pierce through your own soul. And here's what she sees that pierces her soul. In the words of Ken Geyer, a pool of blood beating the dirt beneath the cross, a heavy spike through the feet, ribs protruding against the skin, open wounds bothered by flies, hair matted from this morning's thorns, hands raised to God on splintered wood, a slumped torso dangling from impaled wrists like some grotesque pendant. This is what his mother sees as she bears her heart to the hilt to that cruel Roman sword. Well, she could hardly miss any of this, standing as she is right beneath her suffering son at the foot of the cross. She once said to the angel Gabriel when she was a young unmarried woman, let it be to me according to your word, that is to become pregnant with the son of God coming. And then nine months later, she delivered the innocent naked baby into the world at the, at the risk of scandal. That was Bethlehem. Today is Jerusalem. The cost of her willingness is devastating. She is now experiencing a pain worse than childbirth, helplessly releasing her innocent, naked son into the gnashing jaws of unjust torment. Simeon warned her, a sword will pierce your soul. And there's just one reason why our Lord's death pierces her so deeply. She loves him. Every wound to a son is a wound to the mother. So Jesus does what he can to staunch the bleeding because he too loves her. This is a love story. He needs her to know that he's not surrendering to death because he's abandoning her any more than she would abandon him. He wants her to realize he's not returning to heaven heartlessly, carelessly shirking his duties as 
uh, the son of a widowed mother. He, he wants her to know how much he loves her. Now, he could have waited to make this arrangement until sometime between the resurrection and ascension. You know, there were 40 days where he could have told her and John all about this. But no, he wants his dear mother to know this right now, right? When her heart is breaking. The cross is the perfect place for love like this. Now, um, let's say you love this scene, but you wonder why John put it in this gospel when the other three gospels omit it. Now, sure, it's a great personal memory, meaningful in every way to John. But how does it say anything about Christ's love for those of us who are not his mother, not a favorite disciple, especially loved? Is it just a good example for sons to follow, to take care of their moms? If it were only that, that would be great, right, moms? Well, for that question, you must recall something John knew very well. That time, remember when Mary and Jesus' brothers came? It's in all three synoptic gospels. Uh, where Jesus was teaching some people in a crowded house, and they came, you know, the family delegation, they asked to have and expected to get a private audience with him. But he put off their request with these words, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks around, and then he gestures, he motions to his disciples sitting around him, might well have been us there in that room, and he said, here, is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does God's will, he's my brother and sister and mother. And understand, Jesus, he wasn't demoting his family. He was elevating the rest of us. If you think the way Jesus loved his mother at the cross has no relevance when you're alone or vulnerable or fearful of the future or when, when you're feeling unloved for any reason, think Again, you are his mother, his brother, his sister. He loves you like family because you are. Go to the cross. Find that whole love that you long for. Now let's move to verse 28. Jesus has taken care of his last goodbyes, and now it's time for him to die. Just one last-minute thing remains to be done. Things that happen now take place during the final minutes of the darkness that began at noon. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was already finished, Jesus knows that each step in the Father's plan has been completed. The word finished here is exactly the same Greek word, letter for letter, as Christ's final word in verse 30, tetelestai, it is finished. Jesus has no more work to do except for fulfilling one last prophecy of the Old Testament. So it says Jesus said so that the scripture Psalm 69, 21 might be finished. He says, I thirst. Now, finished here is the same root verb again, not the normal word for fulfilled. So I translate it literally to show the harmony of John's, the, you know, the words John has chosen. Fulfilling a prophecy, in this case consciously, is in a sense finishing it. It had been given until it's fulfilled and it's not done yet. And so... To evoke the fulfillment, Jesus says, I thirst. Now, I've titled this section, excuse me, itchy nose. I think that means guests are coming for dinner. Um, 
famous last words. There are actually seven short sayings, as you know, from the cross in the four gospels. And I'm tempted to survey them all, but I think I, I should stick with the ones we have here in John. Three of them, all unique to John. The first we've already eavesdropped on, the, the word of, to his mother and to John. Uh, let's call that the word of love. The exchange probably happened before the darkness fell at noon. The two remaining words here in John come right at the end of our Lord's suffering, the word of humanity, I'm going to call it, I thirst, and then the word of victory, it is finished. Jesus cries out as well as he can from a parched throat, I'm thirsty. I call this the word of humanity because this is something God would never need to say. Uh, this is something we experience, thirst. The God who creates oceans of H2O just by speaking a word has no occasion to be thirsty. He has no need of anything. God has never hungered or thirsted or been deprived of anything. But Jesus says, I thirst, because this is Jesus dying as a man. This is Jesus as our representative. This is Jesus dying the death that we sinful humans deserved to die. Deserved. It is a death for the, the thing that you stole, the, you know, the lie you told, the person you struck, the, the gossip you passed on, the curse you uttered, the, the dirty joke you laughed at, the test you cheated on, the spouse you cheated on, the coldness toward a hurting stranger, fill in the blank, sin after sin from your own life. And then you'll know why he was there. Hanging as a man for men and women. His thirst is real. Thirst for people being crucified was intense. But by admitting it, Jesus is telling us, I am feeling your thirst and therefore dying your death. But also when he says, I thirst, he is evoking the finishing of a final, almost insignificant prophecy. One from Psalm 69, uh, Psalm 69, a millennium old messianic psalm referred to twice in this gospel already. And so here it is, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The sufferings of David being a prefiguring of those of the Messiah. Now what follows in verse 29 is remarkable because it just so happens that the actual drink available at the cross is sour wine. And it's also remarkable that the soldiers actually give it to Jesus exactly as the psalm describes. A jar full of sour wine stood there. A cheap wine, you know, essentially watered down vinegar. Some of you just love drinking that. I don't know why, but it's available, um, frankly, to prolong the suffering of the criminals. And by the way, this is not the wine mixed with myrrh that Jesus was pre had previously refused. That was a sedative meant to dull the agony. And Jesus was not about there. She, he didn't go into the cross to dull anything. He was there to taste death for every man. He was there to drink the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. But this wine Jesus does receive exactly as prophesied. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Verse 30, as Jesus received the sour wine in fulfillment of scripture, he said, like a warrior finally taking his rest, excuse me, he said with a loud cry, it is finished, and then bowed his head like a, some, uh, like a warrior taking his rest. He handed over his spirit. He dismisses his soul 
to the loving care of his father until the Sunday morning resurrection brings him back. Jesus laid down his life. In fact, he dies quicker than the two criminals on either side. He dies. He, as he said repeatedly in this gospel, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, my own initiative. Or as Isaiah says it, he poured out his soul to death. He poured it out. So in a way, it's not that Jesus was killed. It is that he actively died. It was not a life taken. It is a life given. Now here's the word of victory. He says, it is finished. The verb tense implies this translation. It stands finished and done. This will never need to be done again. It stays done, as Hebrews at least puts it, once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26. And he says it loudly. Not, not a sigh of resignation or a moan of exhaustion. This is a shout of victory. And what is finished well, my suffering is finished. All the relevant scripture is finished. The substitution for sinners is finished. The Father's will is finished. And so here he is, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Paul put it in Philippians 2. Jesus completing the perfect performance, as only he could do. And all that comes after this, this cry is a reward for what he had done for God's obedient servant to be resurrected, to ascend back to glory, to be eventually exalted in the presence of all creatures who must bow the knee to the lamb who was slain and confess that Jesus is Lord. Read the rest of Philippians 2. Now I call the third and last section of today's text final fulfillments. The reason for the final section is twofold. Uh, one is to, to flag two final prophecies that were fulfilled at the cross in order, John says, to spur our faith in Jesus, but secondly, to show that beyond all doubt, Jesus really died, and in fact, even quicker than normal. Even at the time of John's writing, some cults were saying that Jesus didn't actually die, but just appeared to. After all, if he was God, how could he actually die? But John won't let that ride. He, he knows what happened at the cross because he was the one disciple who was actually there. And he saw exactly what happened when Jesus died, even these things that happened right after Jesus dismissed his spirit. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, that would be Friday, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day happening as it did during a feast, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that the bodies might be removed. I put in the word body, the bodies there because it just says that they, some people might think that's the legs might be removed, but that's the bodies. In the normal crucifixion, of course, the soldiers let the victims die slowly. They could take days. And then they would let the corpses just hang there, rotting as a warning to everyone. The Jews are concerned for Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23, where a hanging corpse must be taken down before sundown, lest the land be defiled. I don't want to go into all of that, but, you know, they, they thought, okay, to speed up the dying, well, why not just break the legs to prevent the criminals from pushing up to take a breath, and then they will expire much more quickly. So verse 32 says, so the soldiers came, uh, happy enough to finish their part and go home, 
and probably using the same iron mallet they had used to drive in the nails, broke the legs of the first and of the other one who had been crucified with him. But when they got to Jesus and saw he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, evidently to make sure Jesus had died, pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Here's the point. Jesus really died, beyond any doubt. And this conformed exactly to two additional prophecies. And, and this is for our faith. So look at this final parenthesis, the narrator's notes on what he saw. He's sort of his commentary. He's done telling you what happened. Now he's going to kind of tell you about it. Verse 35, he who saw it, more likely, this is just John talking about himself, and he's just saying, this is no made-up thing, no myth. I saw it. It's all real. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth so that you, plural, that is you readers, also may believe. Faith is encouraged by eyewitness testimony and by the freakish fulfillment of these centuries-old prophecies. Look at them. For these things happen so that the Scripture... He, he, uh, he's referring to Exodus 12:46 or Psalm 34:20 or both might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, just like the Passover lambs. Verse 37, and again another scripture, Zechariah 12:10, says they will look on the one they have pierced at the cross. Scripture is fulfilled exactly. As Paul will say it in his summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with, that is precisely like what the scriptures describe, in accordance with the scriptures. I want us to end with a big question that sticks out at us from this text. And it's just this question, why is it so important that Jesus really died? Why does John need to make such a point of it? What, does it really matter? Well, there Several, probably many possible answers that come to mind, not the least of which is that if Jesus really didn't die, then he lied all the times he told his disciples, I'm going to die, and then on the third day I'll be raised. But I've chosen two answers to this question that both have to do with the love of God. Here's the first. If he didn't actually die, you wouldn't know how profoundly loved you are. Go to Romans 5. Paul the Apostle explains that someone might dare to make extreme sacrifices of love for someone that he knows to be lovable. And let's say a friend who has treated him well. But what if there's someone such as we are who are not obviously that good and not good at all, who are ungodly? I'm using Paul's words. Ungodly. In fact, not a friend at all, an enemy. In this case, God's enemy. He has no assets that God would ever need. He's weak. It's not like he's ever going to come up with a perfect performance. And then what if this person who needs love so desperately is an outright sinner who has made a thorough mess of his moral life and deserves nothing but God's wrathful rejection? What can be done for a person who has already burned every bridge between him and the Almighty? Ungodly, enemy, weak, sinner. What good can he expect from God? To be honest, nothing. He deserves not one sliver of love. 
So how can he ever be convinced he is loved? It will have to be something amazing. And in the place of the skull, God gave us our proof, the cross of his son. I hope you have memorized this verse. Romans 5, 8, but God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we learn when we come to the cross. Love is proven by who did the dying, by how he died, and by whom he died for. So let me put it like this. The glorious, innocent Jesus, that's the who, a person of sublime greatness who deserved nothing but honor. He didn't deserve to be dying, to suffer anything, but he chose to suffer and anguish, an anguished death. That's the how. That's the how he died. This is the proof of his love that he, he endured the whipping and the, and the stripping, the scorning and the thorning, the hitting and the spitting, and then the kneeling and darkness and abandonment. And it says it is for whom? For some great and deserving person? No, for you, this is the whom he died for, for you when you were profoundly unworthy of anything but damnation. Think about it. The greatest, most gallant, best planned, most brave, sacrificial, but undeserving deed that was ever done for anyone was done for you. Someone wrote, all the coats that have been laid in the mud for dainty ladies, every jump into freezing rivers to rescue children swept away, every rescue from fire or flood, every merciful intervention to save a stranger, every donated kidney to save a kid's sister. And we could add every first responder running into the twin towers to save people. These all together are nothing but dim pointers to the thing Jesus did for you on that cross when he died your death to give you what none of those things could have given anybody, the thing you needed most, forgiveness in life, eternal life. So maybe you're facing a big storm in your life. Um, you wonder if anyone cares, including God. You know, the biopsy is out. You know, what if it's malignant? How are you going to make it? Your grandparents lost their minds to dementia and now you're afraid it's happening to you is anyone going to take care of you when you don't even remember their names your company is reorganizing during this pandemic and it looks like you're not on the indispensable list what now with a newborn at home how's a pink slip pay the bills you're getting older you haven't found a mate what will it be like when you're still alone in a nursing home or worse, far worse, you blew it. You, you sinned badly. You, you let everyone down and now nobody can trust you. And, and you know, you think, is there anyone who can stand you when you can't even stand yourself? Is there anyone who isn't just shaking his head? And the answer to every one of those questions is found right there where those four sorrowing women huddle together beneath the cross of Jesus. Now, here's the rest of my heart for us today. You're thinking, as I am, well, of course, Jesus loved me, okay, but what's to say he won't get tired of me like an old rag? Yeah, I can see I'm truly loved, magnificently loved, passionately loved, but what about permanently loved? 
Will he love me forever? Will he ever forsake me? And the answer to that question is also found at the cross where Jesus really died. Because see, if he didn't actually die, you wouldn't know there is nothing you can ever do to forfeit that love. And of course, John is insisting he did die. And not only for you as an act of love, but as you as an act of substitution. I thirst your thirst. I finish all that is needed to pay the penalty for your sin. And so we say it like this. Your sins are totally paid for and your standing before heaven is the same as Jesus. At the cross, the love of God is just half the story. You know, Martin Luther eventually understood this so well that he had to start a reformation. (laughs) Before his own conversion, Luther had been taught one half of this, but not the other, and he lived in terror that a loving God would still not save him in the end. He he shrank in the sight of his own vileness. He he trembled at the thought of the holiness of God. He, He said to a friend and mentor, I cannot and dare not come to God till I am a better man. I have not yet repented sufficiently. What he couldn't understand was how the righteousness of God fit in to the gospel. As Paul said it in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And he hated that verse until he finally saw what he called a totally other face of the entire scripture. And up till then, Luther never knew that the cross proves not just that God loves us, but that God is righteous. And that this is not a message of terror, but just as much good news as the love of God ever could be. He never knew that because of the cross, the righteousness of God is on your side. I don't know if you understand this. There are many churches never teach this. Today, I hope you will understand it. For nothing will keep you away from the warm presence of God is to think that he only loves you and not the other half. I want us to get both halves in our minds and hearts this morning. And here's how I want to put it. Once the demands of God's justice are paid, the desires of God's love for us can be released. It is God's righteousness that in fact demands it. It's easy to illustrate this. Think of a a prisoner who has served his time. The debt to society is paid. At that point, it is against the law not to release him. In other words, the very justice, the very law that locked you in jail now springs open the door. If Jesus actually did die, most certainly not for his own sins, but for yours and mine. Well, you know this verse too, I hope. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Let's look at that part. Now, it is God's righteousness, his justice that demands that you be punished for your sins. But now that the debt has been intercepted and paid for by Jesus in whom you believe, the same righteousness now demands that you go free, that you not be punished. And so now God's righteousness is on your side because that righteousness is satisfied completely by the death of his son who says, it is finished. That's why God will never ask you to die for your sins because you already did when you died with Christ on the cross. Been there, done that, now what's for heaven? And don't you love that verse, 1 John 1, 9, when you confess your sins? 
but there's some word in there that you might have overlooked. If you confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is righteous to forgive us our sins because the justice of God demands that he forgive us because the debt has been paid. And now when God sees you, he sees only the obedience of his son, the full obedience of Jesus. Now on your account, all your failing grades were put on the transcript of Jesus and they kicked him out, expelled him, <laughs> killed him for it. And all of his A pluses have been put on yours, Phi Beta Kappa. You are in a sense saved by someone's perfect obedience and perfect performance, but it's not your own. You are saved by the tetelestai of Jesus. And so this is the other indeed. On Easter Sunday, we say, he has risen, he has risen indeed. But on Good Friday, we should be saying this, he has died, he has died indeed. It is just as glorious and it is just as essential. So here we are, debt-free with God. But that's just the start of it. That's barely the start of it. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, the whole verse. For our sake, he that is God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, you are richer than you were poor. You're holier than you were sinful. Jesus pays your debt, but he doesn't just leave you debt-free because that's essentially basically broke. Well, I'm debt-free. I'm a homeless person. I don't owe anyone anything, but I'm as poor as a church mouse. God makes you fabulously wealthy. It's like going to the bank, finding out your mortgage has been paid off completely and your account has $80 million in it, not the 8246 that you were expecting. That's what we're talking about. He takes away your moral scars and wrinkles. He doesn't leave you plain. He gives you eternal youth and moral beauty you never dreamed of having. Jesus didn't die just to take you back to zero. He died to bring you to glory. Read the whole chapter, Romans 8, and you get the whole picture. No condemnation and no separation. Predestines you, glorifies you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do you know that you are loved? Brendan Manning, the guy that wrote Ragamuffin Gospel, been gone for a few years now, but he had told the story of how he got the name Brennan. While growing up, he had a best friend named Ray. The two of them did everything together. They, when they were teens, they bought a car together, they double dated together, went to school together, even enlisted in the army together, uh, went to boot camp together, ended up on the front lines together. And one night while sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the old days in Brooklyn while Ray listened and was chewing on a chocolate bar. Suddenly, a live grenade flew into the foxhole. Um, Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, and then dropped the chocolate bar and threw himself on the grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. Later, when Brennan became a priest, he was instructed to take the name of a saint. He thought of his friend, Ray Brennan, so he took the name Brennan. Years later, Brendan Manning went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn, and they sat up late one night uh, having tea, and for, for some weird reason, Aunt, 
Brennan asked her, do you think that Ray loved me? And Mrs. Brennan shot up off the couch, shook a finger in front of Brennan's face and said, what more could he have done for you? And Brennan said that at that moment he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus wondering, does God really love me? And Jesus' mother Mary points to her son saying, what more could he have done for you? So it is at the cross that we are convinced, excuse me, you are truly loved. You are passionately loved. You are magnificently loved. You are permanently loved because he has died indeed. Let's pray. So we bow our hearts and prepare ourselves to worship. How easy it's going to be after listening to these words from the cross to be able to tell to you our great thanks and our, and our wonder that this should be true and could be true of us, that you loved us. We honor this this memory, this amazing story that is truer than anything could be. Jesus died, really did die. Indeed, did die. 